Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Robin Bissell's new historical drama, The Best of Enemies. The film tells the true story of how civil rights activist Anne Atwater, an exalted cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan, C.P. Ellis, came together to co-chair a community summit on the desegregation of schools in Durham, North Carolina during the summer of 1971, and how the events that unfolded would change their lives forever. The Best of Enemies marks Mr. Bissell's feature directorial debut. Following a recent screening of the film at the Harmony Gold Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Bissell spoke with director Hart Bachner about filming The Best of Enemies. During their conversation, Mr. Bissell discusses the pressure of short shoots, how his background as a singer-songwriter helped him to communicate with his composer, and what were the most satisfying parts of the directorial process. Hello. Didn't he do a great job for his first film? Amazing, huh? Beautiful job. So I have a ton of questions that I'm going to ask. And uh, if there's time permitting afterwards, if you guys have any questions, we can turn it over to you. Is that OK? OK. So Robin. Yes, Hart? How did, produce, how did producing some iconic films prepare you for, for your directorial debut? Uh, well, I think just having been on set so many times just takes away a, a lot of questions that you might have, you know? A lot of nervousness that you might have walking onto set for the first time. And knowing the hierarchies in each, in each department, the politics, you know, who to talk to, who not to talk to about any issue. So that really helped. And it, first of all, just helped in my confidence in thinking I could direct. Just, you know, um, just having worked with you and Gary Ross and some other people, it's just like just soaking that in and just knowing, okay, I would feel comfortable in that chair, obviously, without having to do it. So there is that thing when you first sit down, you go, okay, oops, now it's you know really me this time. So, um, but I think the biggest thing is just well, and the other thing is my relationships from my producing career. You know, you call the, you get the right keys. You know, I got Jeannie Nopal and to be my production designer Debbie Zane, and um, you know through my. Other, you know, got the right DP and the right, all that. So that helps. I, I don't know how first-time directors do it, especially on a small budget, without people like that. Because there were so many things I knew would be right. I wouldn't have to concentrate on, oh, this set is wrong, or the lighting is bad, or, you know, all those things that you might have to worry about as a first-time director sure. with, with different crew. So. Sure. Since you and I have worked together before, Robin produced a film that I directed several years ago. Yep. I know how accessible and affable you are with cast and crew. Did you find that helpful working with the actors? Oh, that's nice. That was a, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, as a producer, for me anyway, especially being a writer-director's producer as I was, my job a lot of time was just to be the support for keeping everybody happy. So that was my job, you know? It was like, if there's an issue with an actor, an issue with a 
key crew member. They don't feel like they have enough money. You know, it's all about, okay, we'll get there. Everybody's fine. And so that's just what I brought to it. Um, I also found just for me in my career, I always worked harder or wanted to work harder for people that I respected. And I wanted to um, do well for them instead of somebody I was afraid of or somebody who was yelling at me. And so that taught me a lot, you know. Um, so that's just how I, that's kind of what I do. Yeah, there are chaotic moments, you know, but um, there's a lot of smart people around. So, so there's always a way through that. Yeah. Without directing, getting, you know. Directing a first feature has a huge learning curve. Yeah. And when I did my first feature, I gave myself the space to make at least one, if not several, mistakes every day. Did you find that to be your experience, that you would acknowledge that there, there was this process that you were going to learn from and that you would have to kind of give yourself the space to do that? Yeah, in a lot of ways. I didn't have time to count the number of mistakes I made every day. Um, you know, I don't know what you had on your first movie. I had 29 days, but I had period cars that were breaking down. I had, I had lightning. You know, my first day I got my first setup, which was the shot of the um the uh, kkk shooting range and that long dolly shot and then the first lightning strike hit and the generators have to be turned off for 30 minutes so 28 minutes go by and we're about to turn back on another lightning strike so the time so it resets we sat there for three and a half hours after my first setup on my first day so <laughs> i was panicking but it was okay um so i did I realize now or in the editing room other mistakes I had made. Now a lot of them, um, a lot of things I did, I was happy with that I because you have to throw your, you know, you throw your shot list out or half of it, you know, when you're making company moves and stuff like that, a short schedule. Um, there was a couple mistakes I made. One big one in particular, I knew I'd made it and I couldn't do anything about it. And I'll tell you quickly about it. So. There's a scene where Taraji Henson is coming into the parking lot after she puts the hood on, the, the, you know, and, she's, and Bill Riddick comes out after her, and she turns around, and she's screaming at him. And it's a really intense scene, and it's 3 in the morning, and we know the light's coming up in two hours. And so we run out there, and I know I have about an hour and a half, and I'm only going to do two sides. I'm going to pull them out and then do the reverse. So we, I, I, I did a rehearsal of them coming out of the school, right? Looks good. She turns around, does a thing. We rehearsed, okay, let's light it. So we light it. Taraji's a very, um, her, her, she has a gut instinct, and, and usually on the first take or two is when she really hits it. And with Taraji, you never have to get her there. It's all about maybe bringing her down a little. So as I do this, I spent 45 minutes lighting this side. And as I'm pulling them out, she slams the door and turns around, and now it, it's not her coverage, the first setup. It's his, and he doesn't say anything the whole time. <laughs> And she nailed it. I'm not on her face. So I turned around and I went, uh-oh. Because I know she's great in that early stage and she doesn't like to have to chase that. So I went up to her and I said, don't, just, just don't, just wait until we turn around. So we only had to do it one more time from that side, but then I had 45 minutes more to light. And then when we turned around, it was now five in the morning. And the first couple takes, she wasn't getting it and she was pissed. She was upset. And, and I, but I knew, I went right back to the monitor before we started lighting the other side. And I said to one of my producers, I said, that I made a huge mistake, you watch. And that was a big thing I learned. Did you have rehearsal process? I mean, 29 days of principle is, is tight, very tight, especially with myriad locations like you had. 
what was your process with the actors? I mean, so I only met Taraji once before she showed up on set two days before we started shooting. She went from Empire right to do this movie called Proud Mary, and she got to us two days before she started shooting, and I had already been shooting Sam for two weeks. Sam had time before, so he would fly down to Atlanta while we were doing prep, and we'd talk about the character, and he's so meticulous about his accent and stuff like that, I knew that wasn't gonna be an issue, but we'd talk about it. He went and spent time with the family, and Larry, who's still in Murdoch Center, he's 66 now, and, um, and so uh, with Sam, I had that. I had that kind of going in. I had a, very, a big comfort with Sam. With Taraji, I'd only met her once before she got down there. So I had no rehearsal. So no table read, no? Nothing. Wow. Yeah. Wow, because she's full. She came in at guns blaring, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. yeah. So that was, I mean, it was, it was I, knew th I knew I had chemistry between them. Because even before we started shooting, when they were first on set together, they were joking around, they knew each other, and I knew that was going to be great. So I didn't worry about that. It wasn't like I had to get there. And there are some things that suffer from lack of rehearsal, for sure. Some subtleties. Um, I had to cut a, a big scene at the end of the movie with, um, it was kind of the end of Taraji's arc, unfortunately. And this, we were shooting it the last day, and we just never got to talk about it. It's when she delivers the charrette resolutions to the city council. And I only show her now getting up and then you go back to Sam after the fire. Well, she gets up and that old jackass turns his chair around again. And you look, you, I have a shot of Bill Riddick and it looks like, uh-oh, she's gonna get pissed again, right? Man turns his chair. And instead she says, I'm glad you turned your chair around because now you won't see me. And you won't see what I look like and, and I know what you think of me. So maybe you'll just hear my words. So that was her arc. Well, it was our last day of shooting. It was five in the morning. We were, she, she and I were both getting on a plane to leave in three hours. And she nailed it. I mean, nailed it. Crying, though. And it was a beautiful performance. Did not work at all. Because had I had time to think about it, she wouldn't have done it that emotionally. And I didn't have time. I didn't have time to talk to her. And at the time, I thought, wow, this is amazing. And when I put it in the movie, it was like, no, she shouldn't be crying here. She should just be you know what, I know better than you. Just like that. And I had to cut that from the movie because it just didn't work, regardless of how beautiful it was for her at that moment. Right. So had I had rehearsal time, I might have remembered that at the moment, you know? You adapted the piece, you wrote the piece. Did you have a vision, a strong sense of how you wanted it all to look and feel? Yeah, I did. I mean, I had spent time in Durham. I knew all the places that I was writing about, and that's a big thing for me, just to feel it, whether I learned something from it or not. But I knew that me writing it was out of necessity to be able to direct it, right? Because no one was going to let me to direct a movie unless I had something that I controlled. So as I wrote, I totally wrote it, everything I had in there as a vision in my head. I knew what I wanted it to look like. I didn't always get there, but uh, you know, some things got better, some things were worse. But you, you secured the rights to the, to the book to direct it? No, I first had the rights in 2009 as a producer. And then um, I didn't really know what to do with it because this director I was working with was researching a Civil War piece. And so I let those lapse and then I went and produced a movie. And after that I decided I was gonna direct and I went back and got the rights and they were still available. He gave me the rights to the book, and then I went to Durham and got Anne's rights and got to sit with Anne for three years. 
and I got CP's family's rights or CP's rights from his family. Wow. Talk about talk about the editorial process. How did you work with your editors? Would you come in every day and camp out there? Would you take a look at something, give notes and take off for the day and then come back? What's your process? So we didn't have the money to have editorial in uh, Atlanta with us, so he was here, Harry Yoon, who I knew from Hunger Games. He had been a visual effects editor, and he had just done a movie called Detroit as a co-editor with my good friend Billy Goldenberg, our good friend Billy Goldenberg. And so th this was Harry's first solo thing, I guess you could say. So, you know, the other thing about 29 Days or a short shoot, as you know, is you don't give yourself a lot, a ton of options. You know, a lot of things in this movie I would have shot with six or seven setups, and I even had that in my shot list, and ended up doing it in one or three or... So you don't really give yourself that many ins to a scene or outs. So there's not eight myriad there's not myriad choices, you know. Um, so he would send me pre-cut scenes. A lot of them were great. Um, a lot of them I had just had different intentions. Um, so, no, I, I wouldn't leave, you know, uh, I would look at some rough cuts... And then occasionally, if it was kind of a big scene or a, like or the shooting, like the shooting up at the house, right? I had this thing in my head that I couldn't necessarily articulate, but I knew what I wanted it to be. And I just let him play with it. I'd come back in and say, no, it's more about them, not much about her. So there were those moments. Yeah. For Did sure. you storyboard? Did you? No. I, I, I mean, I would have, the only thing I would have storyboarded was that shooting scene, probably. Um, and the only, the closest thing I got to storyboarding was the final vote scene. Just because even though everyone's sitting and just walking to the podium, it's a long scene. I only had two days. Luckily, I convinced somebody to get me a, um, a crane so I didn't have to lay dolly. So every angle, I could just move the crane. Um, so on a Sunday before we started, I had the DP and my camera operator to, the ha to my house in Atlanta. And we just read the script and talked about just the sequence of how we were going to shoot, who we needed to hose off, we needed to see this person, that person. So that was important. That was the closest thing to storyboarding I think I did. But that was really important because I only had two days. And how long was your prep schedule? It was decent. It was, uh, let's see, April, May. It was probably about 10 weeks. That's good for yeah. a 29-day shoot. Yeah, about 10 weeks. It was pretty good. Of course, you know, it took us, I first wrote the script in, I finished script 2014. So, you know, you crew up, you, there are just things that you think about so much. I'm not thrown into something that I don't have an idea about. So for me, it was more about pivoting. You know what I mean? Pivoting off my, preconcept, my preconceptions about how I wanted to do something, you know? And that's, by the way, when you were talking earlier about mistakes, I just became a better listener, I think, being, this, being a director. Not only in the process, but also a, what the movie was about, you know, because I met a lot of pretty incredible people, and I, I had my own thoughts, but you just listen to people, and you're just hearing pretty amazing stories, and so. What about, I, I, I'm sure most of you don't know, if any of you know, that Robin has a background in music. You, you had a rock and roll band? Yeah. Didn't you open for Doobie Brothers? Yeah. 
<laughs> Dewey Brothers, Pat Benatar. And you had a record deal. I did have a record deal. walked away from for five right? minutes. Well, we had a record deal that we got dropped from, and then I walked yeah. away. Uh, yes, okay. I was a musician, for, I did, singer songwriter for about four years here. This changes everything. I'm, if I could walk off now, the fact that you uh, were uh, rejected uh. as a music icon. But did you, how did you collaborate with your composer? Did you have specific songs or melodies in mind? I, you know, to me, in the, it, it's funny because as a form, you know, it's the one crew member to me, or the one key as, as a director that unless you have a music background, you don't speak that language, right? It's a language. It's a language. So yeah. you, talk, you can talk to a production designer about a style of house. You can talk to a costume designer and say, let's do, you know, there are things that laymen can at least talk about in those right. areas. Music, you can't, right? And so you say, you might say, I want it more sad or more angry or, so with the director I used to work with, Gary Ross, I would, I would be kind of the mouthpiece to Randy Newman or James Newton Howard. And so that, that really helped me there, just again, in confidence. So with Marcello, um, I, I didn't get temp love for anything, but to me, you find your tone in the editing room, at least I did. Because I might think, oh, it happened to us on Hunger Games, I remember. We, I th we thought this, we'd hired T-Bone Burnett and Danny Elfman to do this kind of Appalachian kind of cool score. And when we started putting up temp like that, it totally didn't work. And so you go, oh, our, what we thought would work didn't work. It wasn't dissimilar on this, even though I knew I wasn't gonna score this wall to wall. It was gonna be much more quiet at times, but Marcella was great, you know, there was only, you know, I, the only fight between us or the, or the tug of war was he's such a great pianist and I wanted more piano. And so I kept saying, do that in piano, do that in piano. But, um, but we got to where we wanted, so. But it does help. I mean, occasionally I was able to say, that's, that's too hopeful a moment. Let's go to a minor key here, or you know what I mean? I, was, I could say those kind of things without being too accomplished as a musician. At least I can speak that language. Because right. that's tough. Plus, composers are, you know, they're artists. Not that everybody on a set isn't, but, you know, you get a composer who's have their own vision and that doesn't want to deal with your vision. That's a, that's a problem. But Marcelo's not like that. And let's talk for a second about casting. What was the, was the casting process? You, you cast here in L.A. as well as... No, I mean, um, so luckily, so again, we didn't have money. I didn't have money for Deb Zane, really. Um, I had, you know, Danny Strong, who I'd asked to produce the movie early on, had, after I wrote the script, was doing this pilot, this little show that I didn't know anything about called Empire. Um, three months later, it became a hit, and there, you know, he said, how about Taraji Henson? Of course, I had been thinking of a bigger lady, but Taraji embodied everything but that for me. It was like, she's amazing, just the power. And I, and suddenly she was, a you know. Did she put the weight on or did she She wore a suit. Yeah, which I didn't ask her to do. I, I just said, I'm just going to play her as Taraji because no one knows what Anna Atwater looks like. They're not famous people. And when J.R. Hallbaker went to her first fitting in, when she was in Boston, I guess, shooting Proud Mary, she sent me back a picture, and what I didn't know was JR took two sizes of everything. She took sizes that would just match Taraji's current size, and then bigger. And the next thing, she sent me pictures back with Taraji wearing pillows in this big thing, and I'm like, right, if you want to do that, let's do it. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, um, it's totally believable. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, 
and then I had to take some uh, the well. I'm sure everybody noticed, but the, I didn't tell this Taraji till after. But the whole first week, I had my costume designer remove parts of her boobs every day to get. They were bigger than that. Trust me. And I she guess she didn't want to change them. I said they're going to be the story. Let's not. So so it was like a little bit each day, and they were still a little big. But anyway, um, it depended on the dress, I guess. Um, so. Um, so then Sam came aboard because I had first, uh, Paul Giamatti had, had, his agent called me and Paul Giamatti was attached for the year before, but then he had Billions, which got picked up and then he had to be back on Billions too early and we couldn't shoot. So I, we waited a year and I recast with Sam who had always been at the top of my list. But as you know, when you're dealing with financiers and a, an actress with the caliber of Taraji, they want you to go to the... Bradley Cooper's of the world, you know, so you spend, you know, a year or so giving each of these guys two months, you know, even though Sam Rockwell's always there in your head, you know. So we got close to shooting. I said, screw it. I'm just offering him the part. And thank God he said yes. So anyway, back to your question. I didn't have money for Deb. I mean, she was already doing it at a lower rate. But I knew I had money at, um, in local casting in Atlanta. I had, I had a line item in my budget. And so I said to Deb let's just give you that money. Do you want to just do the local casting? And she said, yeah, I do. We've done so many movies in Atlanta. I know everybody. So literally, you know, I could only travel like six actors. So it was like Bruce McGill, Wes Bentley. They, you know, they were just, Anne Hayes, who's a friend of mine, just, they just did me favors and I just made offers. But then Deb and her, and her, her co-casting um, director, Shana Markowitz, just flew to Atlanta and we cast the whole movie in two days in, in a hotel. Wow. And, and that's why somebody like Deb is so great. She just brought you a couple of choices? Three choices each. And, and, and invariably, when Deb brings you three choices, it's one of those people. It's crazy. Now, there was a couple that I, that I think there was one part that didn't get cast that weekend. Um, but I think it's only because I had a, I had a, I couldn't, I didn't really have a vision in my mind of who it should be. It ended up being our financier's son was great he was the guy who played the state leader of the clan who gives him the award at the end he plays robert jones who's a real guy um and and it's funny because i was gonna he his dad had told me hey can you give shane jackson a little part and i said of course he goes he's kind of an amateur actor and this guy is you know rick jackson's a billionaire he's got jackson health care he's got this huge you know um his own like uh, you know uh, park you know full of all these different companies and when I went out to meet him for the first time, I met Shane first. I went in Shane's office, and Shane runs one of these big companies for him. And as he's talking to me, Robert Jones is the only part I hadn't cast yet. And I just, and everybody in the room was like, dude, you're not listening. And I was like, I think you're Robert Jones. I said, dude, will you be Robert Jones? He said, yeah. Because I had seen him give a speech on a ribbon cutting, and he's got that southern draw, and he just looked the part. So, but yeah, with Deb, it just made it so easy. I mean, so easy. Yeah, she's fantastic. And they do extras casting. I mean, the extras in this movie were so real, you know? So. There is a moment in the process of, of making a film where you have this incredibly intense, creative, wonderful experience. And then it suddenly, in an instant, becomes commerce. This creative process becomes commerce. You want to talk about that and... Eventually, you have to kind of walk away from it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I hadn't really felt that before, kind of having something that was close to me and having to give it away. As a producer, I was always just supporting a writer-director, so I, it was never my baby. Yeah, you, you kind of feel ownership for stuff and you along the way, but for me, like if I, I didn't start as a writer, I can imagine having just been a writer to start and writing something that was really close to me, then giving it away to a director where it's no longer mine. I never had to experience that. Um, so for this, it was, it was, I mean, I, from the very start, I paid for the, the rights to the book and the life rights out of my pocket for five years until we got the money. So it started with me. I had my crew, like it, I was just making all the decisions. I had my hand on every button, you know, and, and the script didn't change from the first draft. I mean, it, nothing changed. I mean, I cut it a little bit, but it didn't change in structure. And so when you get to this point and you have a movie and you're done in 2017 and it's testing in the 90s and, and you're trying to sell it, then, then it's out of your hands and you're, all you're doing is yelling at your, well, you're not yelling, but you're, you're, you know, you're desperately begging your sales rep, you know, your agency and the guy who runs my billionaire's company to sell the film. Like, let's make a deal. I don't want to miss this year and I don't want to miss 2018, you know, or 2019. And then it becomes, you know, and so it's hard because you, it's not your movie anymore. You don't own it. And I'm not talking creatively. I'm just talking, I can't say I'm selling to this place. I'm going to sell to that company because I like them better. It's not up to me anymore. It was the hardest year of my life after the best year of my life, right. for sure. What, is the most, what was the most satisfying aspect of this entire process for you? I mean, you did a great job. The movie turned out beautifully. Thanks. I, I think the most satisfying thing for me was that everyone really loved the script. And that universally I was getting calls from people who I hadn't known who were saying, I teared up, I cried, I this, and it all feels great, and no one was telling me this didn't work. Because I knew I could direct, I thought I could direct anyway, but I didn't know I could write. And, and now, yes, I had this in my head for a long time, so maybe that was part of it, but that was the most satisfying. I mean, making it, my time in the chair and prepping was the best time ever in my whole career. It's hard career. to give up. It's it? great. That, that time, just, direct, just, just, just all of us moving and doing and with all these brilliant people and these great actors, that was awesome. Um, I wouldn't trade that you know, for anything, those five weeks or five, you know, five months of between prep and shooting. But my proudest moment, I guess, was my writing, even though it was the hardest part. Yeah, because it's the first thing you've really written. Yeah, it was the first thing I wrote. Yeah. But you've been involved in the process for quite a while. Yes, in the writing process. Yeah, with you and with Gary Ross. and uh, Yeah, so that helped me a lot, just learning about structure and stuff. I'm out of questions. What about you guys? Anybody <laughs> have any questions? Yes, Mary Lou. Thank you. She asked what was next. We were told to repeat the questions. Um, I have a, a, a limited series that I'm, I've just outlined all eight episodes. It's based on a book about this woman, Andre de Young, who was a Belgian girl in the World War II. That's great. And I'm writing an original thriller feature um, to hopefully do next. Uh, so one of those two things are at the forefront. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Yeah, I mean, initially, uh, it didn't, never worked as 
well as I, you know, when you think about it, you always know what it's going to be. I re the reason I wanted a lot of rock and roll and stuff up front was I wanted to sell a chaos and an absurdity of the period. Like, I initially, like I had Bowie in there. I initially had some stones in there and it felt a little Martin Scorsese, you know. But I want, and then as the movie evolved and became more gospel and more meters and more Bill Riddick, I mean, uh, Bill Withers, you know, and that was kind of in line with what his arc was doing and what Taraji's arc was doing. I really wanted to sell chaos at the front. I had to cut some things out of the front of the movie that weren't as chaotic as they appear. Uh, we, or it would have been more chaotic, let me put it that way. And I had an idea about more of that heavy rock and roll kind of in there, even though it didn't really fit the place. Um, so it became, a, yeah, there was tonally some issues, I think, still with some of the music. Um, but um, thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like it, but it does bounce around a little bit, yeah. You, you talk about Scorsese, you talk about music influencing film. Did you have influences, uh, either directors or films that, that influenced I mean, this movie? I mean, look, I, there's some current directors that I absolutely love. I, I think um, David O. Russell and, and Quentin Tarantino and those guys, the way they move the camera, I love. Um, I, didn't, I couldn't do that on this movie. I didn't have the money, you know, I didn't have, couldn't, you know, I could only lay Dolly a certain amount of times. But so what I wanted to do for this movie was try to, I, I, I went back in my head to the, um, the Sidney Lumet movies or you know, like some early Sidney Pollock, like you know, Three Days of the Condor, like things like that, where I did want as much camera movement as, as I could get without you feeling it. So I do do a lot of these, you know, and part of that is just I wanted camera movement. Also, it's just the fact that I like backs of heads. I don't mind backs of heads. I like that. And then revealing what's happening. And it also serves a purpose because I can get the whole room and the master becomes whatever. And so um, I wish I could have moved the camera a little more. Um, but, that, but just the, the, the palette, kind of the, you know, the palette, which was kind of muted and the sweat and all that, that just went to a lot of those great 70s movies that I liked. And that's kind of what I wanted. So. I'm a big Sidney Lumet fan. One more. Real One quick. more real quick. Yeah, so AD's obviously super important. So I, I at first had lunch with this guy, John Saunders, who had done, he was the second AD on Hunger Games. And he was about to say yes and do my movie. And then he had already been, I think it was, I want to say it was Vice maybe, that he had already signed up for before and then it fell apart and then went back. So he did that. And I said, who else you got? And he said, Ian Callop. And I didn't really remember Ian, but Ian had been a, a, a PA on, Hunger, uh, on um, Seabiscuit. And so he knew me, and I kind of remembered him. And, and John said, he's great. And so he had done first ADing on some TV, and he'd done second ADing for John on a lot of big movies. So that was good for me. That's a good mix, right? Second AD for big movies and, and a lot of TV as a first because I knew I needed to move, and Ian's a great dude. He was an ex-pitcher from UCLA. He's like a 1,000 feet tall, massive dude, but a teddy bear, you know? And so Ian and his group were, I mean, impeccable. It was great, thank God. So yeah, I mean, always a huge thing, especially in a movie like this. I mean, the first three out of every five days for our first four weeks, we made company moves. Every, three out of every five days, so three, yeah. I mean, company moves in the middle of the day, so. Thank you all very, Thank you very guys much, so much for coming Thank you. and for appreciating Robin in the movie. Thanks. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.